0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in for Rebecca Shear, and this week we're going in search of wisdom. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines wisdom as knowledge that is gained by having many experiences in life. That's pretty straightforward, but we wanted to get a bit more specific. So this week, we sent Metro Connection's Steven Yenzer out to the streets to ask Washingtonians about the last time they got a really wise piece of advice. So if you could just tell me what, how you would
1: define wisdom.
2: Wisdom is having experience and know-all in life
3: where to find wisdom, the ability to understand your surroundings and circumstances, and uh, to know what's going on in the world.
1: Have you ever received a piece of advice that you found
3: particularly wise or helpful in your life?
2: One thing is to always treat everyone the same, whether it's the janitor or the president.
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, I think, is just to uh, do in
4: life what actually makes you happy.
3: The trouble is that you get wise advice, then you go home, pick up the newspaper, and forget. But I get lots of good advice, very good advice.
0: Those were Washingtonians talking with Metro Connection's Stephen Yenzer, And over the next hour, we'll be hearing from lots of other folks sharing their thoughts on wisdom. From D.C. gardeners...
5: One of them said, I think she must know every single plant in
0: her yard. ...to kids who've spent time in juvenile detention. Don't let
6: your past hold you back. Like this quote right here, when you hold on to your past, you do it at the expense of your future. Let it go.
0: But first... As we begin our show about wisdom, we start off with some local residents who are challenging the conventional wisdom about space and comfort and the relationship between the two. They're part of the tiny home movement, a trend that's gaining momentum across the country. The local collective calls itself Boneyard Studios and created a sort of tiny home showroom on a triangular back alley lot just off of North Capitol in northeast D.C. Walled off from the alley by a picket fence on two sides and a wire garden fence on the other, the plot currently holds four trailer-sized homes and plenty of room for a shared front yard and a good-sized garden. Jay Austin, the owner of one of the tidy little houses, is meeting me for a tour. He ushers me in the door of his take on the tiny house, a decidedly modern vision framed with dark wood slats on the outside and gray plaster on the inner walls. He calls it the matchbox.
7: Uh, So back here is sort of the office, uh, bathroom over there. Up top
0: is the bedroom. You get to the lofted sleeping space via a ladder that simply leans against the wall when not in use. Austin has also installed a flat-screen TV in his tiny bedroom. He even has a skylight with a shade he can open and close with the flick of a switch. Personally, I love the skylight. I sort of, when I started designing the house, I just drew a box for the
7: skylight and drew the entire house around it. It's just wonderful. It's right above the loft, so it's great to uh, sort of look up and see
0: the, the few stars you can see over, over D.C., uh, see, you know, the rainfall, the snow. Underneath the loft, Austin's work desk holds a full-sized Mac computer monitor and keyboard. Towards the center of the house, along one wall, is an ample countertop holding a sink and faucet operated with a foot pedal. On the opposite wall is a floating table, a surfaced anchor to the side of the house without any legs. It could comfortably accommodate Austin and a few guests, and he can store his full-size bar stools right underneath of it. He's done a lot with just 140 square feet. Really what I've cut
7: down on here isn't so much workable space as just walking space from one room to another in you know, my office to my dining room is two steps but the office is a normal sized desk and the dining room is you know, a normal sized table um, so i find that cutting out a lot of that walking space really allows you to downsize dramatically
0: you can build a tiny house for as little as ten thousand dollars if you're not above salvaging some material from junkyards austin spent between 30 and forty thousand on the matchbox He says the first tiny houses were really just miniaturized versions of traditionally sized houses with miniature furniture, miniature appliances, and shrunken doorways. But that is
7: changing. I think what we've done really well here uh, at Boneyard Studios is have livable houses, places that are actually comfortable to stay in.
0: There are still many different styles of tiny architecture, and the variety is evident even on the Boneyard Studios lot. Austin unlocks the house next door, which couldn't be more different in its sensibility. Inside, the first thing that jumps out is the triangular stained glass window in the loft. All right, cool. Stained glass. This house, owned by Elaine Walker, is called the Tumbleweed Lusby House. Unlike the matchbox, it has a gabled roof, and inside it has separate rooms. It's adorable, right down to its diminutive three-piece bathroom. Oh, yeah, and you do mean small. Tiny toilet. (laughs) A couple of the Boneyard houses actually have incinerating toilets, which burn black water, that's dirty toilet water, at about 1,200 degrees, evaporating most of it and leaving behind just small traces of ash. That gets to another goal of tiny homes, leaving a tiny environmental footprint. Austin takes me around the back of his house to show me the guts of his rainwater catchment system. So, the shower, once it's hooked up, I have a very low flow, uh, half gallon
7: per minute shower head with about five times less shower uh, water per minute um, than the average shower head. So, if I were taking a five minute shower, that would be about two and a half gallons of water, maybe about seven, eight gallons of water a day for cooking, dishwashing.
0: That adds up to about 10 gallons a day, or 300 gallons a month. Austin says his rainwater system can catch about 100 gallons of water for every inch of rain that falls. And D.C. averages right around three inches of rain a month. So sustainability, affordability, simplicity. Could tiny homes solve all the challenges of modern urban living? Well, not even Austin will go that far.
7: I would not in any way, you know, advocate for putting tiny houses all across D.C. in places where you might be able to put a little bit more denser housing. Uh, That said, there are many spaces like ours, this kind of uh, triangular alley lot that is too small to actually put a structure on. uh, We can kind of use tiny houses as a great example of urban infill.
0: There are also zoning and safety laws that make living in a tiny home tricky. None of the boneyard homeowners actually live in their tiny homes full-time. They aren't big enough to meet current D.C. requirements for permanent dwellings. The boneyard homeowners would like to see some of those rules changed, but Austin, who actually works at the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, acknowledges that there are reasons to be careful about changing regulations governing the size of residential dwellings. Federal and city officials are worried about unsafe housing and property owners looking to make money off of cramming as many people as possible into small spaces. There is some rationale behind some of these um, laws,
7: but it would be great as this movement continues to grow, as uh, different cities adopt kind of different ways of dealing with this to see what works and what doesn't and move forward from there.
0: But Austin also says he really isn't trying to convince people that his tiny house or any tiny house is the answer to all of their problems.
7: We have open houses every month. And I always say that my takeaway from my, my hope in doing these open houses is not to convince a single person to build a tiny house. It would be great if a few folks did. But um, really just to have people come into these houses, come into these 150, 200, 200 square foot structures, look at them and realize maybe I don't need the 2,000-square-foot house, maybe I don't need the 5,000-square-foot house. Maybe next time that I'm looking for a new place to live, I find what I need to suit me, What not what I can afford with my
0: budget at my disposal. That was Jay Austin, owner of the tiny Matchbox home. If you'd like to see pictures of Austin's home and the other Boneyard Studios' homes, visit our website. You can also watch a quick video tour of the Matchbox. It's all at MetroConnection.org.
2: In this small house, made of brick and stone Built
1: on laughter, and all our dreams and hopes In this small house, together we have grown Made a family, made us all a home.
0: So now we'll turn from square footage to square roots and the story of one D.C. public school, Shaw Middle School at Garnett Patterson, located at 10th and V. Streets Northwest. DCPS created the school in 2008 by merging two struggling middle school programs. They hired a man named Brian Betts to become the school's new principal. Under him, Shaw Middle became a symbol of the promise of education reform, a place that challenged conventional wisdom about urban schools and inspired teachers and students alike to succeed. But Betts was murdered in 2010, and critics say the school's unraveling in subsequent years says a lot about the larger problems within DCPS. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us the story.
5: Alice Speck used to push her baby stroller past Shaw Middle School at Garnett-Patterson in northwest D.C. I met this man standing outside the school greeting students and shaking hands with community members. And it was Principal Brian Betts.
4: Good morning, Daryl. How you doing, son?
5: That sound of Betts in a WAMU story from a few years ago. A Starbucks coffee cup in one hand, offering up hugs.
4: I know them
0: all by name. I want to start my day by talking to them. I want them to start their day by talking to me.
5: Speck was intrigued. Her son wasn't even crawling yet, but Betts invited her and other parents to talk about the school. We would have had no doubts of sending our children here. Former DCPS Chancellor Michelle Rhee recruited Brian Betts from Montgomery County in 2008. Under him, Shaw Middle School became the face of the urban education reform movement. What was possible when smart, motivated adults did the right thing by poor, disenfranchised children? U.S. senators toured the halls, a Harvard professor conducted a national study there, and for journalists, it was a regular pit stop.
3: You just made us all motivated and want to go to school. Like you really wanted to go.
5: That's Kimberly Fields. She was one of a group of students who persuaded Schools Chancellor Reed to add a ninth grade so they could stay at their middle school. The next year, re-granted them a 10th grade extension. Even though Shaw's test scores dropped under Betts, with just about 30% of children able to read and do math on grade level, he permeated the building with a tremendous sense of purpose. So when Fields heard Betts had been shot dead in his home, it was devastating.
3: I started crying, and I couldn't believe that I cried. Like, this just my personal. It's not like he's in the family. But I was, like, really emotional, really sad about it.
5: Betts had met at least one of his attackers on a sex chat line. But for the students and teachers who knew him, the manner in which he died in April 2010 was less significant than the sudden loss of their principal. So is this just a story of a star principal carrying a school? Or could DCPS have sustained Betz's vision for Shaw Middle School? Staff who work there describe a series of missteps they say caused the school to fail. After Betts died, the assistant principal was promoted to principal and David DeMatthews, who previously worked at DCPS central office, became the new assistant principal at Shaw.
3: A strength of Mr. Betts was his charisma and, and, and the way he built relationships, but the school wasn't very structured.
5: DeMatthews says part of the problem was that teachers were inexperienced. The vast majority had fewer than five years in the classroom. He says the new administrative team that came in after Betts' death focused on supports for students both socially and academically.
3: We had an extra social worker, a mental health clinician. And then also we did some things in terms of making sure our curriculum was aligned better, making sure teachers were co-planning together, analyzing data.
5: Fanny Bettman was a teacher at Shaw when Brian Betts was principal. She remembers those years differently. Brian was a
8: force of nature. It was invigorating to teach under Brian's leadership.
5: She says Brian Betts gave teachers a lot of freedom, flexibility, and a sense they were changing the world for their students. She says after he died, that spirit was crushed. The environment that year was extremely
8: challenging, bordering on toxic. Extremely successful, committed teachers were micromanaged and... Disciplined.
5: Her colleague Nick Kerwin says Betts was a mentor, and after Betts' death, many teachers felt abandoned by DCPS Central Office.
1: No one came in to help us. How are we supposed to grieve when we're kind of shepherded and in charge of 200 and some odd students who are also grieving?
5: He says students began to act out.
1: I remember breaking up like knockdown fights in people's classrooms actually breaking my hand in the process.
5: Eventually, Cohen left DCPS, but he thinks DCPS should have done more for students there.
1: They deserve better. Shaw was supposed to be this pinnacle of what education should look like in DC. Just because Brian died doesn't mean that everyone should have walked away from it. But I would just like to see kind of more consistency Not let's change every year when we're not seeing what we want to see.
5: David DeMatthews, the assistant principal the year after Brian Betts died, says for the first time the school saw a small growth in test scores. But during the 2011 school year, the second after Betts's death, the school's budget was adjusted to reflect the decision to do away with the 9th and 10th grades it had added a few years earlier. Enrollment plummeted by approximately 50 percent. And since funding is based on the number of students in a school – the budget was slashed by $2 million.
3: We had two other assistant principals. They were cut. A special education coordinator was cut, multiple teachers, a number of people we had to let go of.
5: Then at the end of the 2012 school year, Betts' successor was fired. DeMatthews decided to leave.
3: We weren't resourced appropriately to handle the students with emotional and behavioral disabilities.
5: For a school to function well, students and teachers need stability, consistency, and clear expectations. And with a revolving door of adults, Shaw was crumbling from within. DeMatthew says education reform shouldn't just be about holding teachers and principals accountable.
3: I would want to know who in the school district is likewise accountable for selecting people who are not capable of running a school in an effective manner. DCPS is excellent at branding things. All this hoopla, but Shaw's story tells a story maybe of how maybe they haven't changed as much as people said they, they did or would.
5: During the 2012 school year, under a new principal, things became worse at Shaw Middle School, with lower enrollment and increasing reports of violence. Finally, at the beginning of this year, the current DCPS Chancellor, Kaya Henderson, decided to close the school. WAMU made repeated requests to speak with Henderson for this story over a period of two months, but she was not available, nor did she make any members of her staff available. Alice Beck, the neighborhood parent who first met Brian Betts on her morning strolls, blames the lack of community outreach and constant principal turnover for the school's failure. She reads from a plaque close to where Principal Betts used to stand every morning. It says, in loving memory of Principal Brian Keith Betts. And this is a a famous quote at the bottom that, that Brian said. There are two types of students, students who go to Shaw and students who wish they went to Shaw. Now, five years after Beth started at Shaw, there are neither. The school, which was a symbol of the promise of education, is shuttered. I'm Kavita Cardoza.
0: These reports are part of American Graduate, Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's now time for a break, but when we get back, words of wisdom from one of our nation's most famous presidents.
2: Today at a speech, everyone would have their cell phone cameras out. But in Lincoln's day, we don't have a photograph of him actually giving the address. There's still so many mysteries about it.
0: That and more just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor
7: and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in for Rebecca Shear, and this week we're exploring the theme, Wisdom. And we'll get some wisdom from the world of transportation now in our regular segment, From A to B. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro is here in studio with us to talk trains, buses, bicycles, and cars. Hey there, Martin. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? So, Martin, it's been a rough couple of weeks for cab drivers and metro riders. Let's start with the cabbies. About 300 taxi drivers recently shouted down regulators in a meeting of the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission. What were they so angry about?
1: Well, first, let's listen to how angry they actually were. The D.C. Cab Commission chairman, Ron Linton, started reading a letter, a complaint letter he received from a cab customer unhappy with an experience in a cab. And the cabbie simply would have none of it, and Linton adjourned the meeting. And then after the meeting, cab drivers approached the dais, and it also got kind of ugly. Let's listen to that.
2: Listen. Listen.
1: So what they're angry about, well, there are a array of problems. The credit card processing company's issue is the big one that we've been discussing on WAMU 88.5. The cab drivers had a choice of eight payment processing companies. For instance, when you're in the backseat of a cab, you swipe your card. The company that processes that payment takes its fee and then sends the rest to the driver. Well, the cab drivers had a choice of eight companies from which to choose – Some of them have been good. Some of them have not been good. One of them already went out of business and 900 cab drivers had to find a new payment processor. Another one of those companies, a DC-based tech startup named Hitch, has been fined by the DC Taxi Cab Commission for failing to pay drivers. Hitch says it has done nothing wrong and is appealing those fines. So cab drivers have a lot of pent-up frustration. They don't feel like they have a Uh, a voice in the process, and they've recently associated themselves with the Teamsters Union. It was the Teamsters who organized the cab drivers, had them show up for a rally before that Taxi Cab Commission meeting got them somewhat riled up, as you could hear. And uh, they basically shut the meeting down by protesting
0: Chairman Linton's letter. So this sounds like a complete mess, but what do the cabbies hope to get from their association with the Teamsters Union.
1: On a practical level, they want more representation on the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission, and the mayor's office here in D.C. has basically said, sorry,
0: that's not going to happen. All right. Well, let's now talk about Metro. I oh, think it- boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is fair to say that regular rail riders will put up with a delay or two here or there, but lately things have become more frustrating than usual for some passengers. Tell us what's been going on. Have you been on the red line recently? Not recently, and I guess you're going to tell me that's a good thing.
1: (laughs) Well, in the span of a week and a half, there were three major problems on the red line during morning rush hour, and the performance was so bad that Metro GM Richard Sarles offered this apology.
2: I know that the commute for our red line riders has been really bad uh, in three days over the last week. Um, They have every right to be angry, frustrated. Uh, The delays have been long. I understand that.
0: So I guess the question passengers want to have answered is, when will things get better with these delays?
1: Well, Metro's answer is a familiar one. It's not a popular one. There are three more years of this rebuilding program before customers may notice a complete difference from what they're experiencing now. But with each of these three incidents, there was a different cause of the problem. In one case, a power cable was hanging from uh, a tunnel underground. So... Riders have reason to be impatient. Metro continues to ask for their patience.
0: All right. Let's figuratively take the escalators, if they're working, out of the Metro Rail system up to the surface now to talk about roads. You've been reporting on an issue facing the entire district and the way it deals with how the city actually divides up road space.
1: That's right. Uh, The story was about Wisconsin Avenue, but this is an issue that transcends any one neighborhood. It was trying to make Wisconsin Avenue and Glover Park safer for pedestrians and bicyclists, by taking the three lanes in each direction, six lanes total, and narrowing that down to five lanes, two lanes in each direction, and a center turning lane. During non-rush hours, it was one lane in each direction after the change, because you can also now park on the outside lane. So after six months, these changes were done about a year ago, six lanes down to five. After six months, DDOT scrapped the new lane configuration north of Calvert Street and went back to the old six lanes. Now, the local ANC, ANC3B, is going to ask the D.C. Council to get rid of the changes south of the Calvert Street intersection because motorists and businesses have been complaining about traffic bottlenecks. And there's going to be a hearing before the D.C. Council December 4th. Mary Che, the council member of the Third Ward, she is the chair of the Transportation Committee, and she will be discussing the following
2: issue. I think our experiment with the change in the lanes has not worked out well. That is to say, I still think there are many things we haven't done and must do to protect pedestrians, but maybe all we wound up doing was... um, frustrating drivers as they tried to drive through that area.
0: Have the changes
1: been working? Have they been effective? Well, I've been giving you a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, motorists complaining, businesses complaining. DDOT is actually doing an assessment of the traffic change, and that assessment is not available yet. It's going to end next month because that's about one full year since they implemented these changes. So it's hard to tell with any data available whether or not The changes have been effective. If you're a driver who gets stuck in a bottleneck, you would say no. If you're a pedestrian who's happy the traffic is moving slower on Wisconsin Avenue, you would say yes.
0: All right. Now comes the good part, Martin. Do You have some
1: (laughs) happy news for us, please. I know. Train delays, cabbies are angry, projects not getting finished. The 15th Street bike lane, the protected bike lane, is just about done. And uh, bicyclists are using it again, and they love it. Just some painting and and striping that has to be completed. But that is a project that DDOT has finished.
0: Late, but they finished it. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to take our good news where we can get it. Martin DeCaro, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. And if you've got a transportation topic you think we should be covering, we're at metro at wamu.org, or you can find us on Facebook. We'll head over to Capitol Hill for our next story, to the Great Hall of the Library of Congress. That's where you can find a piece of paper with 273 handwritten words, words we now know as the Gettysburg Address.
9: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal.
0: You may have already heard that this week marks the 150th anniversary of President Abraham Lincoln's famous speech, recited in the clip you just heard by former President Jimmy Carter. But for those who need it, a historical refresher. Lincoln was there in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to dedicate a cemetery for those who had died in the Battle of Gettysburg just four months earlier. The main speaker that day was not Lincoln, but a renowned orator named Edward Everett. He spoke for two hours, outlining precisely what had happened during the battle. Then Lincoln rose to the podium to make his speech.
9: That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and a government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.
0: The version of the address that's on display at the Library of Congress is known as the Nicolet copy. It's named for Lincoln's secretary, John Nicolay, who donated the paper to the library in 1916. Metro Connection's Emily Berman met up with Civil War manuscript expert Michelle Crowell to find out more about what makes this speech and this copy of it so notable.
10: Was this
2: the actual paper that Lincoln was reading from on the day he delivered the address at Gettysburg? Well, we think it's the most likely copy to be the reading copy. We'll never know with 100% certainty. Uh, His secretary, John Nicolay, said yes, this is the copy. Based on the documents that we have now and the copies of Lincoln's Gettysburg address in his own handwriting, this is the most likely version because you can see that he started writing it in Washington. The first page is on Executive Mansion Stationery and it's written in pen. And then we think that when he got to get he decided to change the ending so then he had a piece of foolscap paper which is more like legal size paper today and wrote that new ending out in pencil but the two pages are united because at the bottom of the nicolet copy on the first page you can see a few words are crossed out in pencil and the new words have been written in that unite those two pieces of paper when you see the document person, you can see fold marks. The fold marks correspond on both pieces of paper. So you can imagine Lincoln taking those two pieces of paper, folding them up, putting them in his pocket, and going off to the, the cemetery dedication.
10: Okay, so the Gettysburg Address is one of the most or the most famous speech in American history, and also recognized as a literary masterpiece. What makes it so notable?
2: It's very lyrical, it's very poetic. When you look at his words, they're not long, they're not complicated, they're not things that an ordinary person would have trouble understanding.
10: Can you give an example from, from the actual text?
2: Well, I mean, it's almost everything in the text. Of the people, by the people, for the people. That's something that that people understand. A new birth of freedom. When you look at Edward Everett's speech, there's a lot of classical allusions to ancient Greece. And many people might not catch those, those same allusions. But with Lincoln, he always had a tendency to write in a way or speak in a way that ordinary people would not have trouble understanding.
10: One myth that you hear about the Gettysburg Address is that Lincoln may have jotted it down on the back of an envelope, you know, mainly because it's so short. Is that true?
2: It is absolutely not true that Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope on the train to Gettysburg. Lincoln was not one to give extemporaneous speeches, so he liked to plan things out. He liked to think about his addresses and have something written. But just the, the train aspect of it, if you've ever tried to write anything on a moving metro train, you know that you can't have perfect handwriting. If you look at, at the Nicolay copy of the Gettysburg Address, the handwriting is perfect.
10: What was the reaction at the time across the country?
2: The reaction was very mixed. It wasn't uniformly everyone recognized the beauty of the speech. Some thought it was terrific, some didn't, some ignored it. So there wasn't really a united response the way that that we would think of now because it's such an iconic document. Edward Everett, who was the main speaker of the day, the headliner, if you will, of the Gettysburg Address, he wrote Lincoln the next day and said something to the effect of, I would flatter myself if I had come as near to the central idea of the event in two hours as you came in two minutes.
10: So how did the speech influence future political speeches?
2: I think Lincoln was a very hard act to follow and that politicians still harken back to some of lincoln's words they may not take his standard of being short and speaking very plainly to the common people but still having a lyrical approach but i think lincoln is still it's still a gold standard for politicians today in terms of being able to to say words that maybe not at the time are uniting people but have that test of time That was Michelle Crowell, a Civil
0: War and Reconstruction expert at the Library of Congress, speaking with WAMU's Emily Berman. You can see this original copy of the address through early January. It's being shown along with several historical artifacts that have never been on public display, including the Library of Congress checkout register open to Lincoln's page, so you can see exactly which books he borrowed during his presidency. We've got more details on the exhibit on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, the wisdom of gardeners. We'll hear about a project that's recording the stories of folks who spend time digging
4: in the dirt. Urban agriculture has become kind of a hot topic, like a buzzword. And I was interested to see what was going on before it became a hip thing to do again in
0: It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Today we're delving into the world of wisdom. And in just a bit, we'll hear from some D.C. kids about the lessons learned from their tangles with law enforcement – First, though, we'll talk about that trendiest of hipster fads, urban gardening. But is this really just a fad? An oral history project put together by the nonprofit Neighborhood Farm Initiative aims in part to dispel that myth through recorded interviews with dozens of gardeners, young and old, from around the city. A
9: vine takes up four feet, and if you get three tomatoes on it and the squirrels take off two of them, It's kind of
4: a waste.
9: Mm -hmm. I never
4: forget when I pulled up the first green bell pepper. Like, look how small that is. It's so (laughs) cute. It felt like finding treasure or gems in your hand.
0: That's 88-year-old Geraldine Seidel talking about the challenges of growing heirloom tomatoes, followed by 23-year-old Yael Nash Hubbard talking about the joys of bell peppers. Recently, I met the man at the helm of the oral history project, David Quick, at Mamie D. Lee Community Garden in Fort Totten to talk about what he hoped to accomplish by gathering the wisdom of all of these D.C. gardeners.
4: So the Oral History Project, where did the uh, impetus or the idea for this come from? We grow food and teach people how to grow food, but we've noticed that a big part of what happens with the garden is also sharing of stories, connecting with each other, making bonds, um, kind of learning from each other. and my professional training is as a librarian and an archivist i worked at an oral history project at the library of congress and just kind of just became a big fan of it i think it's a really powerful way to preserve uh preserve knowledge and stories um but also to um to empower people empower people making relationships with each other and building communities so um i and a few other people a lot of people were kind of thinking about it at once or um thought you know i wonder if an oral history project around gardening could fly. And we applied for a grant from the D.C. Humanities Council to do it. We got a heritage grant from them.
0: What has it been like so far?
4: It's gone really well. I, you know, One of my fears was that people would just kind of think that was a weird thing to want to come interview people about. Um, but people really responded to it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was interested in doing, you know, gardening and growing food in the city, urban agriculture, has become kind of a hot topic, like a buzzword. And I was interested to see what was going on before it became a hip thing to do again in 2000s. Um, and indeed there 's a lot of people you know who've lived here for a long time and you know are they 're experienced people they're they 're older folks and they um, they 've been doing it here they 've been growing food in the city for a long time, and I was interested in hearing those stories and we we found a lot of them you know one of if there 's one theme that came out that shouldn 't have been surprising to me, but that did is that gardening just takes a lot of work if you need to if you're going to have a successful garden it's just it's hard work and you have to be out here and weed and that is the constant that has never ever changed and I think some of the people who've been here for a long time can you know they know that and they can kind of pick out very quickly whether the new gardener is going to succeed or not (laughs) like but based on whether they think they can come up once a week and have a successful garden you know so um that's well, I, that strikes me
0: i'm I'm wondering if there's any sort of um you know resentment or amusement from some of the older gardeners seeing this like new um
4: kind of hipness uh be attached to urban gardening yeah, I think you can hear that in some of the interviews amusement but not not in any kind of you know kind of deeply oh what fools kind of way you know like I think. You know, the people we interviewed who've been doing this for so long have, like, a deep reverence for this activity, you know, for whatever reason they, they do it. And that, at least, they have a lot of respect for somebody trying it for the first time. And, you know, some of some of them really, like, our teachers and really want to be out there in a source of knowledge. Some of them, not so much. But, like, you know, there's no kind of, oh, my God, what are they doing kind of thing.
0: I'm wondering if part of your impetus or, or hope is that by collecting this people will actually have more success at gardening or be able to commiserate with gardeners from different mm-hmm. generations because like you said this is a difficult thing to do you really have to have some commitments have a you know work ethic to make a garden work
4: yeah I think in a roundabout way I mean you know some of the funny thing about gardening is you know like there's a lot of wisdom about it that isn't necessarily consistent there's a lot of folk wisdom you know like one person says i'll do it this way and another person says i'll do it that way every garden has its own little microclimate and what grows here might not even grow down in uh at fort dupont garden or something like that but even beyond that in a more indirect way you know just to know that people washingtonians who live here and like we walk past every day and do this, and it it works and makes their life good. I mean, like, I think that's one thing that comes out in it over and over again, is just that it's a really healthy, wholesome thing to do, and it's good for you, and it's good for your body and your soul and your mind. I hope that that will plant some some seeds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: that was David Quick of the Neighborhood Farm Initiative talking with me about the D.C. Gardener's Oral History Project. If you'd like to see a cool map showing where all the different interviews for the project took place, along with some more audio clips, you can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll head up to Laurel, Maryland now to meet a group of people who are trying to gain a bit of wisdom from their experiences on the streets of D.C. And they're sharing those experiences on camera from inside the high security correctional facility in which they currently live. Lauren Landau went through the metal detectors and behind the scenes to find out more.
7: I need to be serious this time, though, okay?
10: action.
8: Tom Workman is the director of the Life Stories program at New Beginnings Youth Development Center, D.C.'s correctional facility for male juvenile offenders in Laurel, Maryland. Since early October, Workman has been coming to the New Horizons unit once a week to help residents write a screenplay based on their own experiences.
7: After y'all negotiate, then stick a on. will come in because he's working with him, okay? Basic, you know, double cross.
8: The two residents acting in this scene, A Drug Deal Gone Awry, discuss their plan while rearranging play money and bags filled with powdered soap. Hey,
6: now, nah, you you gave him the money, cuz you gave him some money, I'm to to and I'm I'ma shot, I'm a shoot. Nah, cuz, I'm gonna take his money, cuz. Uh, uh, uh,
8: Life Stories is organized by the Theatre Lab School of the Dramatic Arts and serves various marginalized populations, including seniors living in nursing homes, homeless women struggling with substance abuse, and at-risk youth. Most of the guys at New Beginnings have never acted on stage or on camera before. But Tom Workman says that out on the streets, many of them adopt a persona in order to survive.
7: I try to dig beneath the surface and find out like where a lot of this sort of comes from. But, you know, if you dig long enough, you see that they're still really kids, you know, and still trying to find direction.
8: All of the young people interviewed for this story asked to be identified by their initials. One of them is 17-year-old S.W., who's in for attempted murder and carjacking charges. He says the program has taught him how to channel his anger.
6: When I first got here, like, I ain't, like, never want to, like, communicate with others. Like, when I was angry, like, I, I let it all build up in me. So now so I've been working with them. like I, Like, now I express myself
8: more. 18-year-old M.W. says that for him, the fun part is the adrenaline he gets from mimicking real-life situations. Even though he says that excitement isn't worth a long stint in prison, New Horizons unit manager Kim Jackson says it is disconcerting for residents to enjoy the rush of recreating a crime. But at least they're being honest. It means that you need to take more time with this young man and work on those core issues. Why is this such a rush still at this time for you and what other outlet or what other thing can we put into place where you can get that same rush and it's something positive? Jackson also says recreating everyday challenges helps prepare the guys for their return to the real world. Now they're able to respond in a different way, you know, and see, okay, if I'm back in this situation, this is what I can do. One of her residents is 19 year old EK. He helped write the screenplay and plays one of the main characters.
6: I'm just trying to get back in the day and just- so which you going to get back at him, then this people's going to get back at Ty. Then what's going to happen? It's going to be war. How mom going to feel about that? You got to think about it.
8: E.K. came to New Beginnings about a year ago on an armed robbery charge. He says the script isn't a carbon copy of his life, but it does include
6: some key similarities. The drugs, the money, the gambling. My younger brother, I got two younger brothers that look up to me. They ain't never really get into the center drugs. Cause I try, I always try my best to keep them away from it. But in this, in this story, we put them into the game, selling the drugs, getting the money.
8: A fairly private person, Ek says, life stories gives him a way to express himself and get his story out without putting his business on display.
6: In a way, it's therapeutic. Cause I hold things inside. I don't really talk about my past. I don't really talk about things that I've been through that happened to me. No, I don't really, I don't really express myself at all. So this help
8: me. A large chalkboard consumes the left wall of E.K.'s room. It's covered in motivational quotes and words of wisdom that the teenager says he reads every day.
6: I like all of them. Wolves don't lose sleep over the opinions of sheep. And I got, if there's food for thought, then I'm guilty of greed. Money is like air. You can't live without it, but you can die trying to get it. I like this one a lot too. Though sacrifice what you are for what you will become.
8: He's had to deal with some pretty difficult circumstances, but Ek says he's trying his best to get on track.
6: I've been through some things at a very young age, so I'm learning now to cope with them, how to deal with them, how to react to certain situations, better controlling my anger. So where's it wasn't, I got to push on, move forward. Don't let your past hold you back. Like this quote right here: When you hold on to your past. You do it at the expense of your future. Let it go. He says
8: you'll never forget the pain, but you can learn how to live with it. I'm Lauren Landau.
0: We've got more about Theatre Lab, New Beginnings, and the Life Stories program on our website, MetroConnection.org. Close out today's show with D.C. Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to
11: have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd.
8: It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap.
0: This time around, Jared Walker's insatiable curiosity leads him out to the northern Virginia suburbs to bring us the story of a biker bar with heart.
11: It's a Wednesday night, and I'm standing in a strip mall parking lot in Springfield, bathed in the neon glow of flickering signs. Lunch, dinner, homemade breakfast, they say. Welcome to Moe's Peyton Place. Inside, at the end of the bar, I find owner Mohammed Trash, known as Moe to his family and friends, and virtually everyone in this smoke-filled room.
9: It used to be a very tough place when I took her over. How a- Fightings, knifings, shootings.
11: That was 42 years ago. At the time, Moe had a regular customer who worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration. Together, the two men hatched a plan to turn the bar into a hangout for federal workers. Virtually overnight, the shady element fled the building, and Mo was left with a clientele consisting mostly of law enforcement and intelligence employees.
9: These guys, I developed the new words for them. Instead of saying, this guy works for this agency, I say, he works for NTW.
11: What's NTW?
9: National Tire Warehouse. That's a dead given away. When they say NTW, I know what they are.
11: Now, the crowds are much more diverse.
9: Business people, I got a lot of business people. Doctors, lawyers, I got a lot of bikers
11: the stereotype about bikers being rougher, crowds, and maybe being a little...
9: If bikers, what I heard, used to be a tough long time ago. The bikers these days, the sweethearts, I'd say 95% of the people in Springfield, sweethearts, beautiful people. Mo personally
11: knows most of those beautiful people.
9: This gentleman here and his wife I know them for 38 years. Rose and Willie Wilcox
11: have been coming to the bar for almost that entire time. What keeps you coming back?
2: The family atmosphere, absolutely. This is a bar that I can come in by myself. You know, there's not another bar that I would ever walk into any time, day or night, by myself. Very comfortable, very safe.
11: I, I grab the remote control and put the basketball game on that I want on. Mo says, Go for it, ma'am. Watch what you want to watch. So, you know, so it's, it's like being in my living room, but sometimes Mina waits on me.
7: <laughs> he doesn't get that at <laughs> all.
11: Mina is Mina Abdullawi, the bar's manager.
9: She is my right hand. This lady here, Miss Mina.
7: Most of them call me Mama. They call
9: you know Mama. Mama.
7: Yes. They, I treat them like my kids, and I love them.
9: The customers love Mo
11: and Mina back.
9: I had a bad operation three and a half years ago. Everybody in Springfield, the Warren Fairfax Hospital in my room. Did
11: that surprise you? It did surprise me a little bit. The regulars didn't just visit Mo in the hospital.
9: When I was in the hospital, most of the biker comes in here, empty the trash can, fill beer, help the kitchen, help sweeping the floor.
11: But that's what family does when someone gets sick. They help out. And the bar's family is big and inclusive. It's just a complete cornucopia of people who come to this place and nobody cares who you are or, or, or what you do. It's all about the bar, having a good time, and meeting new friends.
9: Mo couldn't agree more. I'm born and raised in Jerusalem, but I'm a Palestinian. The lady was sitting next to me yesterday. She was born in Alexandria, immigrant to Israel. She comes to this country twice a year visit. We talk, we have a lot of fun. She's Jewish and Palestinian. We get along very good. Is this, is this a place where people can,
11: can put aside any sort of preconceived notions or differences and get along? Everybody
9: gets along very good with each other everybody.
0: I'm Jared Walker. You can check out Moe's for yourself, including its pretty vast collection of Marilyn Monroe portraits on our website, MetroConnection.org. And if you'd like to suggest a favorite dive bar for our series, you can reach us at Metro at WAMU.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Kavitha Cardoza, Martin DeCaro, Lauren Landau, and Jared Walker. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Steven Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on MetroConnection" link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be looking back on some of our favorite stories about our region's history. We'll visit a town that claims it was the U.S. capital for a single day. We'll check out the artifacts found on a ship that spent centuries underwater. And we'll meet the man who served as the military's first African-American helicopter pilot.
11: The medical detachment wrote back and said, we have one vacancy, you can come up for an interview.
0: I'm Jonathan Wilson, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.